0: Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Dorkfest, the podcast. This, yes, our official inaugural episode. We hope that you enjoy Dorkfest, the podcast, our introductory episode, but now we are actually going to dive into the heart of what makes us dorks. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you will find this as entertaining, enlightening, and enjoyable as we do. We're gonna give a little bit of introduction as to who we specifically are in just a little bit. But before we do that, if you have not watched our introductory video, it is available on social media. We encourage you to check that out. It will give you just a nice little background as to what exactly a dork fest is, its history, and a little background leading into what you can expect from this podcast. With that, we encourage you to follow us on social media at dorkfest underscore podcast on Instagram. And if you like what you hear during the course of this podcast, please uh, leave reviews wherever you enjoy podcasts. If you checked out our introductory video, you know that the four main members of this Dorkfest are myself, Dan Freemuth, my two brothers, Josh and Jordan, and our cousin, Gabe. So without any further ado, let's introduce you to some of the voices that you'll be hearing as part of this podcast. And let's start with my youngest brother, Jordan.
1: So, was just referred to as Jordan, you will rarely hear me referred to as Jordan from here on out. Uh, nickname is Binks, it's an homage to the character that nearly single-handedly killed the Star Wars franchise. In addition to my other dorkish tendencies, I also end each year by compiling a list of the top 50 new songs from that year, and I share it on my Spotify uh, profile. Um, embarrassingly, I am physically incapable of making the Live Long and Prosper hand sign, and I also once watched Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace
0: six times, in five days. A truly embarrassing feat, to be sure, and one that seems to come up all the time for you. Great to hear, thank you so much, Jordan. And now to the youngest member of our Dorkfest contingent, our cousin Gabe.
2: Oh, howdy. Um, yeah, the uh, the youngest, the Maryland contingent, and um, forever an apologist for Stanley Kubrick, Superman and all things related to the band U2, I'm afraid. So get ready, folks. Those are the type of things you're in for here. It's uh, hard to remember a time back in childhood when there wasn't a Star Trek or a Batman or a Hobbit for a while before there was Lord of the Rings. And um, it uh, has stalked us through now to our adult dorkdom. So great to have the opportunity to bandy about these topics with the rest of y'all on perhaps hopefully a semi-regular basis.
0: Yeah, nobody bandies better than our cousin Gabe. I'm going to jump in now, uh, introduce myself. I am Dan, the oldest member of the Dorkfest contingent. I am a firm believer that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time, a firm believer that The Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie ever made. And if I was only to be able to bring three films to the desert island, it would be Jaws, Empire Strikes Back, and then a toss-up between Back to the Future and Jurassic Park. Uh, big fan of the music of Bruce Springsteen, Dire Straits, and R.E.M., and I might be the only person still left on the planet who collects CDs. So just a little background about myself. And last but certainly not least, our middle brother, Josh.
3: Greetings, everyone. Uh, as far as music con- is concerned, my opinion is that all the best music was made before 1977. Uh, I am one of the few who believes that Quantum of Solace is a legitimately good James Bond movie. I somehow, as a child, appropriated two different nicknames from the Hanna-Barbera cartoon Johnny Quest. Uh, Every spring, I create my own scouting reports, big board, and mock draft for the NFL draft, uh, which is coming up for you NFL fans uh, later this week. And when it comes to these dork fests, I always win.
0: And that is correct. Uh, unable to see it as a result of the audio format, but the mic has officially been dropped because it is factually <laughs> correct that Josh does always win. There's been a few scattered victories for others here and there, but uh, it is worth noting that the record keeping as it relates to these dork fests has been very <laughs> suspect through the years. But I'm always very generous with points, though. Very, very generous with points. And speaking of (laughs) points, uh, for those who are joining us for our very first episode, the way that Dorkfests have worked for us in the past, trivia contests where questions are put together on a variety of topics and assigned point values often based on difficulty although not that's not always the case and the format we're operating under for this dorkfest the podcast is we're going to have a general topic uh, for each of our episodes and then we're going to divide that topic into three sort of subtopics and we're to assign one two and three point values to those topics so one franchise that obviously if you've seen the artwork for our Dorkfest the podcast and if you watched our introductory video one franchise you know that is near and dear to our hearts and has been for a very, very long time is the Star Trek franchise. It's going to pop up throughout this podcast in the weeks and months and years hopefully to come as it's been a huge part of our lives for such a long period of time. So what better place to start Dorkfest the podcast than with Star Trek? And if you're going to do that, you have to start at the beginning with the original series. And if you're going to do that, then you have to start with the two seminal episodes for Star Trek, the original series, Balance of Terror and City on the Edge of Forever. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna break down those episodes. Our one point value is going to discuss Balance of Terror, some of the memorable moments, what makes it a great episode. For two points, we're then gonna do the same for City on the Edge of Forever. And for three points, we're gonna try and come to a conclusion as to which of those two tremendous, very nearly perfect episodes, which of those two is in fact the best episode of Star Trek, the original series. So. Without any further ado, our one-point topic, Balance of Terror, starting with just a very quick episode synopsis. If you have not seen this episode, we are going to announce now, spoilers are on the way for Balance of Terror. And, and then the some. Forever. But if you have not seen these episodes yet, please, for the love of all that is holy, stop listening to this podcast and go and watch those episodes right now because they are absolutely, as I said, very nearly Perfect. The gist of Balance of Terror is it's basically a Cold War episode of Star Trek set in space. Kirk and the Enterprise square off against a mysterious adversary who is threatening Federation space. Of course, we know it's the Romulans. The crew faces challenges from within and without while attempting to balance the security of their territory with the threat of war, So, starting at one point, Balance of Terror, it aired on December the 15th, 1966. Josh, let's begin with you. Thoughts, takeaways, what makes this such a great episode? Romulans
3: are awesome. And this is where they start, and they start them so perfectly. Uh, take a moment to think about all the iterations of Romulans that we've seen throughout the rest of Star Trek, they appeared prominently in Next Generation. Uh, in they, they got an entire movie devoted to them with Nemesis. This is a culture, a species that has just intrigued Star Wars fan, fans forever, and or Star Trek fans. Pardon me, my goodness, um, that forever. And this is where it all began. And. The main points that that, that make them so cool in this episode, the the first thing, their ship is just so freaking cool. Their uniforms are cool. Their technology is cool. As much as you love Kirk and Spock and company on the Enterprise, it is so difficult to root against this Romulan crew because they are just so cool. And that is the first thing that sticks out to me about Balance of Terror is that Romulans are introduced and they are made perfect in nearly every way.
0: When when looking at the Romulans, I think what's so interesting about this episode is you get a look into the Romulan ship, the Romulan crew, and the Romulan culture that you don't get with a lot of other species. And to see that this early on in the original series, I personally thought was a real treat. And it really brings home some of the points that you made, Josh, about how cool the Romulans are and how much you want to root for them because you got that inside glimpse into their ship, into their crew, in, into their interpersonal dynamic.
1: And that's one of the really most engaging things about this episode is you think about the Romulan commander. Um, so much of what makes so many of these original series episodes great are the villains or the other actors, the other characters that are coming in alongside the main crew. And that Romulan commander is not only just a cool character, he's an incredibly intelligent character. He's an incredible strategist and he's sympathetic. You can see him, you know, really thinking through all the decisions that he's making and thinking through the effects that it's going to have, not only for, the civilization that he loves, but then also how it will affect the connection between the Romulans and the Federation. He himself says many times that he he, he finds himself wishing to not make it back, wishing, wishing for defeat or wishing for destruction before he gets back. And that's an incredibly sympathetic thing to be hearing from the character that
2: you're supposed to see as the quote-unquote enemy. It's hard to disagree with any of that, guys. <laughs> uh, I, I'd also only, I guess, like to chime in that uh yeah the ship the romulans design classics instantly um the initial shy I mean, you think about the amount of sort of trek mythology that is as mentioned packed into this episode the initial reveal i don't know if you guys ever remember the first time watching this when mark leonard turns to the camera and we see on board their ship and hey wow those are familiar pointed ears <laughs> <laughs> and yeah just the uh all of a sudden everything we sort of knew through whatever it's been almost 15 episodes of star trek at that point there's a, a little sideways, you know, a little Dutch angle thrown on there, and uh, to then, you know, watch Kirk have to navigate some of the tensions of that, not, you know, on his own ship, and um, and yeah, certainly contrasting that with the the martial nature of the Romulan vessel. I mean, it, it is about the clash and comparison of cultures.
0: We've spent a lot of time talking about how cool the Romulans are, what a great character the Romulan commander is and and props to Mark Leonard for his portrayal there. Of course, you know, he goes on to portray Sarek, but this is where it began for him and he does a a tremendous job there. But Gabe, to your point, you brought up Kirk and his management of the situation and the crew. Uh, Let's go there for a minute because I I think this is such a strong episode for James T. Kirk. And I think it begins right at the beginning of the episode where we have this um, this life in the midst of duty sequence, where he serves as as the efficient of a wedding, and then instantly has to go into captain mode and battle mode, and then later on in the in the episode, balancing wanting to solicit the opinions of his of his shipmates of his crew while also trying to manage uh, the bigotry. And he even says, you know, th- there's no there's no room for bigotry on the bridge. Leave that in your quarters here, here, here. with Styles as it relates to Spock. I think this is just such a masterful episode as it relates to Kirk and, and what a tremendous captain he is. And I think that's so important because yes, this is a, a, an enterprise versus Romulan, um, ship dynamic, but it really is an episode about Kirk versus his opposite number on the Romulan side.
2: We joke a lot about, or, well, we have, and you'll hear us joke a lot about Shatner, um, as Kirk, because you have to, but this is absolutely an episode that highlights um, the strength, I think, of both the actor and the character. It absolutely shows a lot of the breadth of what life, you know, uh, duty at, in a time of war, sort of is, you know, when you've, uh, you see a lot of the daily operation of the ship, you see, you follow Kirk through the full arc of kind of a command decision from, yeah, the responsibilities to his crew, from, to the responsibilities to Starfleet um, to the responsibility to, you know, am I making, as he says in one, in one scene, bones, am I making the right call? What if I'm wrong? And, you know, it's, a, it's a rare sort of look into that. And that was initially something that was baked more into the concept of the Captain Pike iteration of the character as they were developing Star Trek. And you don't see it often from Kirk because he's more known for his bravado and all that, which again is his um, abilities as a commander are really well showcased. And this the chess game he plays with um, Mark Leonard's Romulan commander is, um, is a classic for sure.
3: That scene that you mentioned, Gabe, with bones in Kirk's quarters is what completes Shatner's performance in this episode and Kirk's sort of emergence as a character in halfway through this first season of the original series. Because just rewatching this episode a couple nights ago, but throughout that first, what, 20, 25 minutes, what sticks out to me is just that Kirk is always in control. He knows what he's doing in each and every situation in that briefing room scene. As Dan was mentioning, he is in complete control over eliciting Style. input from all, all of his crew, even someone who we know, someone styles who he knows is going to be uh, maybe a bit of a problem child. And then, Later in this scene with Bones, we get that there is this vulnerability, there is this doubt, there is this humanity uh, to Kirk to make him identifiable, and he's, he's cheered up or encouraged by Bones in a way that... Like, I, I'm not sure that that would have done that much for me. Like, don't destroy the one named Kirk. Like, okay, yeah, I'm trying not to. It's So I think that the, the dialogue maybe leaves a little bit to be desired there. But Kirk's, but including that for Kirk and the performance by Shatner is fantastic.
2: Uh, that scene just at the end of it there, as you mentioned, McCoy's dialogue, I think that might be... A, a defining piece of McCoy dialogue. That one bit is always, this piece has always stuck with me for one reason or another. And it's, uh, you don't often get, you get a lot of Kirk Spock. I think some Kirk McCoy moments are a little fewer and farther between. And yeah, that whole, you know, and, and all that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us, that entreaty to not take yourself down when there's already enough pressures on you. Oh, boy, I think that's just a nice bit of advice to remember.
1: And Josh, to go back to your point, how, you know, that might, the dialogue might not necessarily be something that's going to get through to all of us. I think part of what really gets it home to Kirk in that moment is also what's going on in their interaction. You know, Kirk even says, as he's about to leave, like, I wasn't expecting an actual answer. Like, I was... Like I was just kind of, I was just kind of talking to you, and 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 McCoy actually stops him. He he stops him from leaving the room and says, "But I do have one." So there's something going on, and it, you know, it's it's almost like a, a a bit of a momentary role reversal where McCoy is the one taking charge and saying, "You may not have been expecting to hear this
2: answer, but you need to hear this answer." What's that line he gives? I don't say this to every customer, Jim.
3: To a customer, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So so
3: I guess, Gabe, maybe your contention is more so that it's less about like, because earlier in the episode, in that briefing room scene, McCoy is, I think, clearly the voice of caution. Uh, he's yeah. the one telling Spock, do you want a galactic war on your conscience? And so I always interpreted that as like as pretty much literal from McCoy, that like, let's maybe get the hell out of here before we all die, rather than don't beat yourself up too much, which it sounds like is maybe where what you, the way you interpreted it, Gabe.
2: It's maybe a fine line, but I think in the briefing room, and it is notable, too, that Spock is, for once, on the side of, no, We, I, I agree, attack, he says. Um, yeah, that's a shocking it, line. It is. Um, and I think in the briefing room, McCoy's acting as an officer. And I think in Kirk's quarters, he's acting as Jim Kirk's friend. And I think that might be the difference in the advice. He's giving his, I mean, in his official capacity, as medical officer, he's going to have to deal with the fallout of these decisions one way or another. And as Jim Kirk's friend and physician, he knows he's under enough stresses already. It's a tough thing. Why pile it on?
0: So we've talked a lot about the um, the trio, the main trio, right? Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and justifiably and deservedly so. And anytime we discuss the original series, that's invariably where we're going to go. And when we get to City on the Edge of Forever, it's going to be even more so because those guys – That trio is basically the reason that episode is so tremendous. But can we at least give a little nod to some other crew members? Uh, We were just touching on the briefing room scene, and I love the moment. Everybody files out except for Sulu. Sulu waits at the door for his captain to proceed. They're both going to the bridge. Sulu waits, and he walks behind his captain. I absolutely love that. And can we just spend a moment to recognize what a star Scotty is in this episode. And yes, the guy is a miracle worker throughout the series and throughout <laughs> the films, but his, his multifaceted role in this episode is so, so darn good.
2: James Doohan is the ultimate utility player for Star Trek PM, the original <laughs> series. He does so much work as like other voices that you wouldn't expect. And as Scotty, he's always pitch perfect. I mean, in that same briefing room scene, there's a little moment. This is really tiny and it's not going to compare necessarily to some of the other things, but this stood out to me this time. Um, it's when Styles goes off on Spock and Kirk just eyes him and he goes, Sit down, mister. And as Styles does, you know, sort of cowed, you can see Scotty look back and forth between Kirk and the Styles and you can see in his eyes being like, He got you, you little, you, you. He got you. <laughs> Sit down. Way to go, Jim. Okay.
3: I especially loved scotty in that opening wedding scene he's setting up the the camera to be the wedding videographer then he's the father of the bride and then when kirk gets the alert and kirk rushes to the intercom scotty scoots from his front row seat and he is right there next to kirk and just like as soon as Kirk gets the words red alert out. Scotty is boom off like a shot to his, to, to the bridge. I mean, he is just on top of it in that opening scene.
0: That's true. We gave, we gave Kirk a lot of props for being able to flip the switch from wedding efficient to captain mode as readily as he did. We have to give the same props to Scotty as well for being able to deliver, and I, I just quickly want to go back to the briefing room scene for just two two little. I mean, they're just they're small little nuggets, but I, I when I watch the episode again, it's like, boy, Howdy, that's some really good storytelling in just a very little moment. It starts at the beginning; they get the wreckage back from the outpost, right? castrodidium the strongest substance known to our galaxy and spock crushes it in his hand and you start to think holy heck i mean these romulans we know they look tough we know their ship's cool and we've seen them take out some outposts and that poor guy at his console turning around before the room's about to burn up and here's spock crushes this thing in his in his hand and that i absolutely love and it's so subtle you almost miss it before the Romulan ship goes into the comet and they're going to sniff it out and be able to track the trail or whatever it is they're going to do, Kurt asks for an analysis about the comet. He hands him a book. And I don't know if you guys noticed, <laughs> the book uh-huh. is called Table of Comets. And Spock just shoves it off with his hand. He's like, No, 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 no. I got this. I don't even know. <laughs> Quite of Comets.
2: ordinary. Yeah.
0: yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I thought it was know just such a subtle little good thing.
2: Yeah. I don't know that I'd ever seen that before. Like I, like if, or noted it really like, or that it had triggered anything, but yeah, that is a a weird, cause I don't know if you ever see a book again until court. That Um,
3: briefing, that briefing room scene is definitely my favorite in this episode and maybe my favorite in the whole original series.
2: That's there's the so same. much
3: great interaction between all those characters. Uh, it, it, the castrodinium sequence you were talking about, Dan. I love the the musical flourish. Yeah. Um. As he as he as he cracks it to to accentuate the drama. Obviously, Kirk's showdown with Styles, but then Spock really turning the tables on what we as an audience think he's going to say and really advocating for some serious violence which is so out of character uh for him even through you know 14 episodes and certainly given the length and breadth of what we've seen from spock's character since then
2: i mean i wonder if that wasn't sorry dan i i just wonder if that also in a way isn't in character for spock because for him that is maybe the most logical alternative
3: to what's out there right now. Well, that's that's what he he says. I mean, that analyzes the situation. Yeah.
2: So I
0: think none of us can argue Balance of Terror is a tremendous episode. It is one of the greatest episodes of the original series. But for many of us Trekkies, it is not alone in the conversation of greatest episodes of the original series. So with that, let's go to our two-point topic, and that is the other episode that's widely regarded as the best among the original series, The City on the Edge of Forever. Another first season episode from the original series, original air date of April the 6th, 1967. We begin our City on the Edge breakdown, Jordan, with you. So,
1: Balance of Terror is very much a battle episode and i think what i took away from rewatching city on the edge of forever is that it's very much a human episode it's an episode about human connection and i saw three major examples of this in my rewatch you obviously have the human connection between kirk and spock the the repartee the interplay between the two of them even in the midst of this very stressful situation you still have moments where they're joking back and forth to one another and you start to get a lot of the humorous, logical moments from Spock in this moment. One of my favorite of which is when they're in the the basement of of the mission, you know, Spock says something like, I, I don't think that insults are part of your prerogative as your, as your commanding officer. And, you know, Kirk almost sheepishly comes back and says, oh, oh, I'm sorry. And then obviously you also have the human connection piece of, you know, this, this entire episode is Kirk and Spock looking for, their crew member, their fellow crew member, and their friend, McCoy, the driving force of this episode, in addition to correcting the time travel mistake that McCoy made, is also finding them. And then, and then, you know, possibly and probably most of all, you have the human connection between Kirk and Edith Keeler, which is a very different type of connection than we see between um, Kirk and many of his other female counterparts.
3: I don't want to start out with a nitpick, but... But you're going to start out with a nitpick. But I am, and (laughs) he does. The fact that there has to be this explanation of, well, yeah, Kirk gets with a lot of broads, but this one he really cares about uh, just seems a little bit fishy. Especially seeing as how he clearly has something to gain from this relationship with Edith Keeler. Um, I don't think it's a legitimate nitpick. I just think, as in relation to this series, in the context of the rest of the series it gives a slightly different impression of that relationship for me what this episode is is it's kirk and spock stupid like these are the two of our favorite characters in the whole entire universe of film tv books everything and this is them at their best for 45 minutes and it's a joy to watch
2: i guess then the question is what elevates it from other episodes that have that similar component, like a piece of the action, or, I mean, even something like an I Mud*, you know, where it's a little more wide crew action, but, you know, you get like, so what is it that takes City on the Edge to that classic level? I mean, in part, you know, if we want to delve into the background of it, it's got kind of a troubled road to making it to be filmed. Um, Roddenberry wanted a bunch of sci-fi writers to contribute to Star Trek, and one of them was Harlan Ellison, who ultimately ends up credited with this script. Along the way, it has about five different writers, including Roddenberry himself and a couple of other um, stalwart Star Trek staffers. So what comes together is kind of a, a hodgepodge of a bunch of different ideas that all kind of get cut in from the foundation of Ellison's work, which, is, which he wrote initially without having like the Star Trek Bible, as I understand it. So the characters do things that are out of order. I think when we were talking about this before, it was mentioned that in the original draft, Scotty's dealing a crewman drugs under the table because Harlan didn't have that, the Roddenberry sort of forward view that we're a little more evolved in the future. Now Harlan's thinking like, no, in any sort of organization, there's still going to be some graft and corruption and stuff like that. So what I mean, the elements that made it to the screen then, what sticks around? Certainly, the romance with Edith Keeler, one way or another, that's something that sticks out is important to um, Star Trek and perhaps Kirk's art. And I think you know, it's interesting to think you
1: know, like in doing the research of about the 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 troubled past. Gabe, as you put it, that this script had, it was interesting to see some of what was in the original and what was not in the original. One of the most interesting things that I found out in doing this research was that in the original version, it was not Kirk that that kept Edith Key, or that made sure e- Edith Keyler died in the end. It was actually Spock. Spock was the one that made the final decision. And that made me rewatch the end of the episode in a very different way. It made me really focus on the fact that yes, Kirk does make the decision that, he, he, that, as Spock says, Edith Keeler must die, but he does it by stopping McCoy. And this brought up an interesting question for me. I wonder, was it, I don't know if it's necessarily easier, but was Kirk more able to follow through with this action because he was stopping someone else from doing it in such a way where he didn't actually have to see it. His back was, uh, he, his, he was facing to the back of the action in, in this moment.
3: I think that's the key Jordan is that just given the geography of the way they set it up is that Kirk doesn't have to be looking at it as it happens. And so in that respect, I think it, the answer is clearly, yes, it makes it easier as awful as that potentially sounds. Uh, just the fact that he doesn't have to look at it has to make it easier. And the fact that you know physically he has like someone to hang on to, you know, a, a, physical goal to accomplish maybe mentally makes it a a, a little bit easier I think it has to Jay
0: well and I also think the fact that him having to restrain bones for the betterment of of the right the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one Spock's words but Kirk's actions in this episode and as a result of having to restrain his dear friend you know that that proximity you guys are talking about that proximity with his friend in that moment is is a source of comfort I have to believe and I think you know that moment the ending of this episode is so strong I, I think that probably if you were to to make an argument okay what? of all the 50 minutes of balance of terror versus the 50 minutes of city on the edge, like which full 50 minutes do I enjoy more? You might say there are more moments in balance of terror. Like, Oh, that's a memorable scene. Or I, you know, I I like that little bit, but boy, the ending of city on the edge, the powerful moment that that is we'll get to the end when they get back to the guardian. I I just, that, that ending is, it's tough to beat.
1: And Dan, to your point, it's, it's powerful. It's emotionally powerful. It's humanly powerful in that. And, and, and the score, the music that's going back that's that's behind that moment too plays into that as well. But, you know, going back to Kirk's reaction to it, I also think that as he, you know, restrains McCoy and then has McCoy embrace him, he also probably knows ahead of time what McCoy's response is going to be. Then that, that McCoy is going to say something deep like, do you know what you just did? And it speaks to the 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 just the powerfulness and the the heady emotion of that moment.
3: Yeah, and and it starts with it starts very mundane with Kirk and Edith Keeler having this innocuous Clark Gable conversation and then you see Kirk, shocked to life by the mention of McCoy's name, and then the embrace that they all, the three of them, share outside the mission is just so heartwarming, and then you, your heart is just torn to shreds throughout the end of the rest of the episode. It, it, the, the roller coaster that that ending takes you
0: on is remarkable. So we've talked a lot about the emotional end of the episode, and, and again, I think deservedly so, that's, that's the climax, that's, that's when your heartstrings are, are tugged on. But one thing I think that City on the Edge does extremely well and is not at all a thing we could have mentioned as it relates to balance of terror is injecting humor injecting some levity. And of course we are gonna get this when these spacemen from a starship are transported, you know, back to 1930s Earth, you're gonna, you have an opportunity to have some comic moments there, but I thought they were really tastefully done. I thought they were, the interplay between Kirk and Spock and the Earthers is, I mean, tremendous. Kirk having to, you know, thinking that this but we're going we're gonna to do just fine here. I'm just going to steal clothes whenever we need him and we're going to, you know, outrun the fuzz, no problem. I, I thought that there was a lot of really good humor and with that humor comes humanity and I think comes relatability to these characters as well.
2: I um, agree that there is a lot more of the, the, the sort of the character basis as uh, Jordan refers to sort of humor, the connection of that going on in this one. I I don't know ultimately if the rice picker bit has aged well
0: <laughs> i mean I, 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 not- felt a little,
2: <laughs> I gotta say it um it's uh, it's it just sort of speaks to you know uh, who's writing the episodes at the it's time. different time yeah it, it absolutely that's that's something that has not aged particularly well but i do think um one thing that balance of terror and city on the edge forever share is um, they're, they're both really well made Star Trek episodes. You know, These are Star Trek episodes that sort of had the benefit of being made before they had really serious budget crackdowns, before the first time they got canceled. And I think you can really see them uh, and and their Trek veteran directors really use the most of what they had around there. Trek has never been faulted for not being ambitious with its limited, uh, you know, otherwise limited effects and set budget and all that kind of stuff. But both are really well made just in terms of production value and how they use the cameras and that ending segment uh, that we're talking about is a really, it starts so wide, you know, you can see and then it punches right back in to those guys. And it's this quick cut, you know, kind of staccato thing as you see the truck coming and you see Edith walking and then Kurt takes a step and stops and he spins. and uh, it all comes together. Yeah. Beautifully. They're really well-made episodes.
1: Just going back quickly to the comical moments too. One of the things that I think about is the, the quip between the guardian of forever and spot when oh, the Guardian of yeah. forever says, I answer as simply as your <laughs> level of understanding um, makes possible. It, it's just, and, and then, and then Spock's Spock's reaction to that. Oh, is, his
3: indignation yes, is just yes, nice. beautiful.
2: And then the second line is: um, I I state that like Spock accuses him of speaking in riddles, right? And the Guardian says something like, "I speak only as your level of understanding will permit." <laughs> or no, uh, yeah, your science is obviously primitive. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spock yeah. goes, Which, really.
0: It's just an opportunity for the Guardian to put Spock in his place. And that's, you know, nothing wrong with that. We've talked, I mean, this episode is Kirk and Spock and McCoy. Does it at all lose any points, any luster? Because really none of the other main characters, you know, Uhura, Scotty, Sulu, do, do we ding it at all, you know, not really involving those characters, not giving them a whole lot?
3: I think we can ding it slightly, but I also think that this episode, it's almost as if they knew, like, okay, it's going to be heavy into Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, so we'll give Sulu a key role in that he is the one critically injured on the bridge. We'll, we'll put Uhura and Scotty on the landing party and let them, let them have some pivotal dialogue in those situations. So I think it... Maybe a minor ding, but I don't think so, Dan.
2: This is also, um, as far as the the character beats go, yeah. No, I, that moment on the planet when they sort of the plan becomes stark. What it is they have to do in order to try and set the timer right. This is a pretty ambitious, and maybe one of early Star Trek's more ambitious sci-fi premises. All of reality is broken right now, and they have to go pull an Avengers Endgame and set the timeline right. You know, before it was cool.
0: <laughs> right. Leave, leave it to Gabe to somehow shoehorn the Marvel universe <laughs> into our into our conversation about it's very the sifty series.
2: move. It's also notable that in the original drafts, McCoy was not the one who goes back in time. He was not – the cortisone accident was added along the way, and it was some anonymous random redshirt that was, you know, gone back in time and and messed with things. But on that that moment on the planet, I do think that's another fine James Dewan moment when he just sort of accepts, like, Scotty, when you think you've waited long enough, you'll each have to make the attempt to turn. And Scotty's like, yep, got it, no problem. And he says, good luck, sir. And this might be – I don't know if it's her best line or maybe her most defining, but it's really notable – Scotty wishes her good luck, and Uhura says happiness at least, sir. And I yeah, think that's yeah. just a really great encapsulation for it to be like, hey, we're in some poodoo here, but positivity, you know. Right, right, because
0: the but they're because they're going to go back in time and they're mm-hmm. going to try this thing, but there's no guarantee that it's going to work. And there is mm-hmm. there is the statement that's made: everyone's going to try, and at least in you'll certain. be you'll be somewhere, you'll be yep. alive. We don't know where, we don't know when. And If it doesn't man, work, it's yeah, going to be better than
2: stuck on this planet where our time is no longer our time.
0: Right. I think it's a really poignant and, and appropriate line. So a question that I
3: had after rewatching this most recent time is, if McCoy goes through the Guardian of Forever and doesn't change anything, do they still go back in time after him?
1: I think that they do. The reason that they're on the planet is to go and get him the the reason and i mean you bring up a very interesting point you know certainly <laughs> certainly if that were the case we probably wouldn't be discussing this episode right now <laughs> like
3: but be, it wouldn't
1: just,
2: make
3: for a
1: very entertaining episode no
3: but,
2: uh, <laughs> they're just chasing mccoy across various time areas.
3: the stakes are raised by it being mccoy but there is the simultaneous huge stakes of their whole existence being erased and to bring um, that
2: pivot around something that is not that far away in recent memory in 1966 is World War II, you know, that's right. that's still kind of a tried and true premise at that point.
1: And I think, Gabe, not you so really funny. bring up something that's, that's powerful about this episode and something that we didn't really get a chance to talk about too much with Balance of Terror, but the historical context that both of these episodes operate within with balance of terror just to go back to that really quickly you have sort of the the issues of civil rights that are being that are being brought up in there also the way that they don't they don't totally understand the the romulans in the same way that we didn't understand the viet Cong. we didn't we you know we, the, we were operating in, in different worlds and we didn't understand them. And you have the same thing to a certain extent going on here with City on the Edge of Forever. You know, I think of Edith Keeler, I think of her leading a pacifist-like movement when this is happening all in the middle of the Vietnam War. And you have this being broadcast on, on national television. And I think that, 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 that there's something very powerful to that. And I think it, again, as I said, I think Star Trek is at its best when it's saying something human and it's saying something about the moment in which, in which they were existing.
0: And I think those two episodes in particular are, are episodes of the original series in particular, doing that the best. I, I just want to wrap up our city on the edge conversation with Edith Keeler. Um, this is a main character in this episode. We've spent a little bit of time talking about her. Josh, you mentioned how you're sort of uncertain about, you know, Kirk's level of affection for her because of, Kirk's reputation I'll say for lack of a better word but that may have been a reputation that was established later on in the series I know it was it had been introduced already but maybe this isn't I'm not trying to turn this into a
3: cancel Kirk podcast (laughs) I'm I'm just saying
0: I think it's a valid point but Edith Keeler is one of those characters that has lasted long after with, with a legacy that other of Kirk's Lady companions. friends, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, have enjoyed. So what is it about Edith Keeler that makes her a special character, makes her relatable, makes her memorable, or maybe does not?
2: I, I think there's two sides to this. Um, firstly, it's helpful to have Joan Collins um, in, a, in the pantheon of great Star Trek guest stars. She's up there still. She comes in and does. I think a really, you know, it's she pretty easily puts Shatner in his place the first time they meet in the cellar. You know, that that opening line is a classic. A lie is a very poor way to say hello. Ooh, yeah. It's a great, it's a great all-timer. Um, and and to his credit, you know, at that point, Kirk's like, yeah, okay, you're right. Sorry. Nope. <laughs> no crap. We stole these. And I think it, the power of her ideas sticks around as well. There's a little bit um, looking back and, you know, credit where credit's due to, I'm, I'm certain um, one of the writers on here is D.C. Fontana, Dorothy Fontana, who I, I'm sure did a great punch up, but there is a little bit of the sort of proto um, pacifist pixie dream girl aspect to edith keeler and then she sort of you know the fact that you know how many heroines have to die in order to give their hero some emotional stakes and stuff like that so all of that can sort of count against the episode's datedness but it's a really nice performance and spock said has a good line about her that she was right at the wrong time he says you know again sort of echoing spock's logical militantism um, in the face of you know what needed to happen and in the face of setting the timeline right He's saying that yeah, her pacifism ultimately proved to be the way, but not for this time and place. And you know, it—it's the moral quandary. I think is is that question is what keeps this episode alive.
1: In terms of the greatness of her character, for me, it comes down to one word, and that's visionary. She's visionary, and this show is visionary so she's very much operating within the the ethos of star trek that you know she's saying that man will harness great powers and that they will do so not for war but they will do so for peace and i think that there's something very visionary about that and i think that's something that's very powerful about her character
3: spock nails that also gifted insight right after she gives uh like her first speech about anticipating atomic power and and time travel, Spock nails it again there
1: too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think she's just a really nice, a nice foible almost for Kirk. You know, she, you guys said it. You know, you, she calls him on his BS immediately, and he and he does a one eighty from that point. You know, not only am I am I not lying. My name is Jim Kirk. His name is Spock. Doesn't matter how ridiculous the name Spock sounds in that time, in that era, but that's, you know, she makes an honest man out of him instantly, you know, and and I think their dynamic becomes very real. I think he respects the heck out of her. And I think a lot of the love and affection comes from that respect. And I, I do believe, I mean, yes, Kirk is, is a ladies man.
2: I mean, that is,
0: that's, that's part of that's part of his character to be sure but i it's think he really james has yeah i think he really has genuine feelings for her and i think hey in um in balance of terror in another reality the romulan commander could have called kirk friend and i think in another reality in city on the edge edith keeler could have you know been the one for james t kirk
2: it is her Relentless goodness. I mean, and not her, just she's so earnestly good and positive and focused on that part of people. You know, that's why she does what she does—the the running the mission. You know, it, it's she's just a relentlessly positive, good character.
0: And City on the Edge is just a relentlessly, positively good episode. So, all right, so we've done we've done a deep dive into Balance of Terror. We've done a deep dive into City on the Edge of Forever let's wrap up with our three point topic and let's try and decide if one of these two is better than another i mean th- and this just basically comes down to individual thoughts and opinions so gabe w- we start with you do you have a favorite between these two
2: i definitely do um and it has shifted a little bit over time but it, i say shifted it might be really more like wobbled <laughs> um balance of terror i think is is forever my Preference and favorite, and I think that has more to do with a lot of um, how I, you know, what what it has appealed to me about Star Trek over time, and well, a lot of, I see a lot about the, the ship kit operation, the connections between the the characters on board the Enterprise, you know, all the good guys, all that really appealed to my childhood self, and I think that just you know perpetuated over time. I do want to say I didn't, uh, I want I want to give a fair knock to Balance of Terror as well, if, since I you know did a bit of a read on City on the Edge because. Um, and I don't know if this is necessarily a knock, but it's worth noting. Uh, Balance of Terror's plot owes a huge debt to a 1957 movie called The Enemy Below, a Robert Mitchum and um, Kurt Juergen's uh, movie, uh, who ends up, I think, being the uh, bad guy and The Spy Who Loved Me. Quick. Uh, That's correct. Back there. Yep. Um, which is about a, a American destroyer boat chasing a German U-boat in World War II. And a lot of the beats are very similar. You know, the depth charges going out to try and hit proximity things, you know, the submarine disappears below the surface and they sort of have to coax it out in order to fire upon it and and win the day and the uh even the nazi commander of the u-boat uh expresses some uh, discontent with the third reich and how it operates you know in its, in its imperial fashion just to you know it's a great episode and it's really well made but you know it is it's a lift is that a knock against it no because i think there's also so much good star trek established in the ba- in balance of terror i mean for one line about the planets Romulus and Remus and some mysterious allusion to the Earth-Romulan war. And through one appear- you know one thing about a cloaking device, there's so much Star Trek lore that is seated in this. And City on the Edge of Forever is a great legacy episode for the respectability of Star Trek. It won them awards, and rightfully so. Um, it's got a lot of emotional depth and maybe some that was surprising for television at the era. But I think for Star Trek, Balance of Terror is what wins a day. I
1: have to agree with Gate, Balance of Terror, I believe is the superior episode. When when you think about the episode of Balance of Terror, the, the, the basic storyline is simple, right? You have enemy attacks the Federation, Kirk and Enterprise must rescue or must help out the Federation, but then within that sort of simple storyline that, as Gabe said, has has, you know, sort of roots in other stories and in other movies at the time period. You have such depth. You have, you know, one of the things that I, that I saw in, in watching Balance of Terror again, that, you know, Kirk, yes, he's very much in control, but he's also seems very fallible in, in, in this episode, more so than in other ones. You see him facing conflict, both from outside of the Enterprise, obviously, but then also from within. With the issues of bigotry and with and, and with styles and 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 with the the other interior conflicts that you had going on in there, and, and I think for me, the, the the point that really just drives it home is that if you have to pick one guest star character or actor for that matter, you you can't get better than Mark Leonard, and for my money, you can't get better than the Romulan commander. You have this enemy in this episode that is incredibly sympathetic, that you don't really want to see lose necessarily, and that you also you know, feel for him at the end when he says, in a different reality, I could have called you friend. I think there's something very, very powerful about that. And, and for that reason, Romulan Commander, most of all, that for me is why Balance of Terror is the superior episode.
3: Dan, which way are you going?
0: Yeah, see, I, I'm going, I'm going anti, um, anti Gabe and anti Jordan because, and and you guys make great arguments and and look, we're we're talking about one A and one B here, but sure. you know, Jordan, the crux of your argument is the Romulan commander and the guest star of Mark Leonard, and and they're both phenomenal, but to me, Star Trek boils down to what I will call the holy trinity of Star Trek. And that is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Now, yes, McCoy is separated out of that trio for the bulk of City on the Edge of Forever, but he is he is the linchpin for why this conflict has happened. And he is the linchpin for these two who now are without their friend. Yes, we have to go back in time and yes we have to fix, fix the timeline, but we also to find our friend who is lost, who is sick, who is out of control. We don't know where he is. We need to find him. And that human element that just, just leaks through the whole episode is what does it for me. I also love the humor that's involved in the episode. I think the highs, the way that this episode is able to bounce between heartfelt emotion and and just kind of making you chuckle and, and have a good time, I think is is so dynamically brilliant. I think the storytelling is excellent. I think Kirk and Spock's performance is masterful. And yeah, for me, the final it probably only boils down to about the final two and a half minutes from the scene where basically start it from the moment Kirk is starting to go on his date with Edith Keeler to the very end of the episode. It's probably only about two and a half minutes. But boy, how do the emotion you feel in the midst of that. And yes, the day is saved, and we should be feeling really, really great about ourselves. And James T. Kirk feels like crap. So, you know, hey, you know, the Federation would want to give him a medal after that performance, and he feels like garbage. And we're left feeling a little of column A and a little of column B. And so to me, the human element of Star Trek, the dynamic between those three main characters has always been what drives me to that particular series and why that leads me to believe it is the best of the original series. Josh, are, are you going to weigh it heavily in balance's favor or are you going to give us a little tie here?
3: No ties in Dorkfest. I'm going balance of terror. For me, it is just a, it's a more complete episode. I think that analysis you gave earlier, Dan, about a 50 minutes versus that final five minutes weighs heavily in the, the way that I've always felt about these two episodes. And something else that we didn't get to from, from Bounce the Terror too much is the cat and mouse game of combat that is played. Uh, the, the comet gambit is one of my favorites and how each commander had their own idea for how to use this comet to get the other one. The episode is full of moments like that, and it also has the human connection. It also has that holy trinity sprinkled throughout. It has strong performances from Sulu. It's got this hothead rando character in Styles, which is a Star Trek staple, too. And the Kirk face-to-face at the end with the Romulan commander, I think it rivals... The emotional effectiveness of the end of sitting on the edge of forever—it's not as emotional, clearly, but it's close.
0: It, it is awfully close, and we did say in our intro video that we were hopefully, though not probably, going to some going to come to some worthwhile conclusions by the end of this podcast. I guess maybe we actually did today because we've got three votes for Balance of Terror and only one—my one measly vote for City on the Edge, but I think we've done at least a fair job of giving both these uh, episodes their just desserts, right?
3: Well, yes, in, in, in our votes, in casting our votes for Balance of Terror, both Gabe and I admitted there were parts of City on the Edge of Forever, which are clearly better. That That's how close it is between these two episodes.
0: I think before we quickly wrap things up, I mean, these are two great episodes, but they are not alone in terms of great episodes of the original series. I mean, we would be remiss if we did not at least acknowledge the argument that people make. Trouble with Tribbles, Amok Time, Mirror Mirror, are other great episodes. Anybody else have any others that you think at least deserve consideration among, I mean, we're talking the Mount Rushmore now of original series.
2: I do think that, um, and, and I would normally, or at least historically, I think in these dork fests, I've been one to not exactly poo-poo, but to downplay the treble with Tribbles. But the more I've thought about it, I think that episode does have something that both these episodes in their respective ways, they kind of lack. And it's that playful sense of just what, you know, this fun life is like here in the 23rd century. You know, you just get a sense of what, it's another kind of day-to-day show on the Enterprise, but you know, now there's Klingon interplay and there's this strange alien creature. And we learn that they use credits and they still drink and they have arguments about drinking and bar fights. And you know, it's just, that's another neat aspect of the characterization. Shore Leave is kind of another one like that. I did uh, want to say that I did in my research going back, I um, found a list from 2009 from when we got together to watch uh, you know, our initial viewing of Abrams' Star Trek 09. And we have a bunch of candidates for trying to find out our top 10 original series episodes. And we also have a top five worst. So that could be something we could revisit at some point another time.
3: Only other episode I want to throw out is Galileo seven always been a particular favorite of mine really thrust Spock into the spotlight on that one, which is very enjoyable. And, and, and also some, some key moments for Scotty uh, a yeah. star again in that episode.
0: Sure leave. City on the Edge, Galileo Seven, Balance of Terror—all first season episodes. <laughs> if you yeah. have not fully engrossed yourself in the ori- in the first season of the original series of Star Trek, do it now for the love of all that is holy. Do it now. Do So because also, it is very worth it.
2: Also in the first season, Errand of Mercy, Arena, Court Martial, This Side of Paradise, Court Martial, Basically,
0: Court Martial comes terrific. out of
2: the first season.
0: Devil in the Dark. Enemy Within, I mean... Devil in
2: the Dark is routinely cited as a personal favorite of many of the cast and crew for some reason.
0: Well, because they got to uh, hang out with that guy underneath the rug. The Horda, that's true. The Horda. <laughs> so, yeah, how, how could that not be fun the, for the whole... The thing?
2: Naked Time too. I gotta say. Do that, it guys, day. do that do that no-kill-eye trick. Guys, you gotta see what this <laughs> thing can do.
0: So basically, I, I, I think I think we, we would have a much shorter list if we listed the episodes in the original, in the first season that we did not
2: enjoy. Uh,
0: that number would probably rival the number of third season episodes that we did in fact enjoy. But there's, there's no, there's no doubting I think at least among this group and many of our fellow dorks and fellow star Trek fans that it's balance of terror. It's city on the edge for the original series. As far as, as good as that series got, thank you guys so much for, uh, well, first of all, thanks to everybody for listening to the inaugural edition of Dorkfest, the podcast. John, thank, thank, thank you, thank you, Gabe. thank you, guys, so much for your wisdom, your thoughts, your insight. Please, everybody, if you are listening, make sure you follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. Please also make sure that you leave reviews uh, if you enjoy Dorkfest, the podcast. Please leave reviews wherever you enjoy uh getting your podcast and stay tuned we'll hopefully be bringing you many more editions of Dorkfest the podcast in the future but in the meantime until next time know that
3: many such journeys are possible let me be your gateway
0: captain the enterprise is up there
1: they're asking if we want to beam up
2: let's get the hell out of here
0: thanks for listening everybody